0: If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let's turn it to Matthew chapter 10. If you don't own a Bible, then please grab the ones that are around you and turn with me to page 815. I'd like to dive in in just a moment, and so just to give you a sense of where we will be today and then in the coming weeks, you can see, I think on the back of your bulletins, that we will be finishing a section of Matthew, as we have been doing, and taking a brief break from the Gospel of Matthew, and go to an alternate series in the Old Testament that will begin, Lord willing, next Sunday in the book of Daniel, where we will overview Daniel for four weeks, and you can see that laid out. I was convinced that we should do Daniel because the more that we're in the Gospel of Matthew, the more you're going to hear this phrase, the Son of Man, and the more that you need to have Daniel's stories in your mind to understand who Jesus thinks he is when he so often refers to himself as the Son of Man figure. Daniel is one of those often confusing books, and so I would encourage you to uh, read ahead of time before you come to church. Uh, Get a sense of the stories. And then um, also we'll try and send out resources or things for you to study on your own. But um, let's dive into Matthew 10, starting in verse 34. And then we will finish this last section of Jesus' sermon on the mission. And then uh, the next time we're in Matthew, in a few weeks after the Daniel series, uh, we will then pick up Matthew 11 and go back to the stories section. So let's read. Follow along. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, he will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. With all of the climate of division that seems to be ever increasing in at least the political environment or in the country that we live in, many people might turn to religion or to Christianity and think, oh, Jesus. He comes to bring peace. Well, here in our text, we see that if that's what you're looking for today or any day as you come to Christ, you'll see that Jesus is himself quite controversial. And we'll see this in three different aspects in our text, and I think they're quite paradoxical as well. So there's a paradox of controversy in three parts. The first part we'll see is that the Prince of Peace, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the mighty God that we celebrated at Christmas time. But he causes division, even among families. That'll be the first point that we'll look at in those first few verses. Then we'll see that the giver of life, the one who created life, calls his followers to die, even die on a cross. And lastly, we'll see in that last little section, the reward of the righteous is free. It's essentially free, even though it was quite costly. Let's take these one at a time and look at each scripture that unpacks these ideas. First, the prince of peace causes division, even among families. You'll see that right away in our first part, verse 34. "'Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household.'" Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and we heard the angels announce as we rehearsed Luke chapter 2 that the Son of God was born, that peace is going to be on the earth. Didn't Jesus also teach earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that when somebody strikes you in the cheek, you should turn the other cheek Or didn't he earlier in Matthew chapter 10 tell his disciples, don't bring even a staff with you, presumably to protect oneself, but be willing to be beat and flogged before governors? Later on in Matthew's gospel, won't Jesus be the one who rode into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but a donkey? Wasn't it Jesus who is, as he was in the garden of Gethsemane, rebuking his disciples when one of them literally pulled out a sword and chopped off a soldier's ear to try and protect Jesus. And wasn't it Jesus who eventually laid down his life on a cross to conquer death not by fighting with swords, but by dying on a cross? So what does it mean that Jesus did not come to bring peace, but a sword? Everything else about Jesus' stories and life seem to be saying something quite different. It should be obvious enough that the word sword here is a metaphor, a metaphor that's then later explained in the text as division. You see, he says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword in verse 35 through 37, I think unpacks what that phrase means. There will be division against even people's own family. The sword metaphor is to say that even though he wants to bring peace with God, with the nation of Israel and then later the whole world, through the message of reconciliation, he will and does bring peace. But because of the demanding nature of what Jesus' message brings, it also means division. So yes, these disciples will have power over sickness, They will conquer demons of the devil. They will have power over death and uncleanliness, but they cannot escape or avoid hostility or opposition completely. Being a follower of Jesus most definitely means that we are people who cannot avoid conflict. We cannot be people pleasers, as we looked at last week, and fear man more than we fear God. We should not fear what they might say or do about us, because especially of our faith in Jesus Christ. How many of you, if you're honest with yourself, would say, yes, I struggle with that point in particular. I'm not one that likes conflict. When conflict comes, I run the other way. I don't like awkward conversations with my friends and family members. When some topic comes up around the table, I change the subject. When I'm asked a direct question, I beat around the bush. Is that you, my friend? I don't think we should enjoy conflict. I don't think this text is telling us to pursue conflict. I'm telling you that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it is going to come, it is unavoidable. This is the reality that Jesus is explaining, not the desire that we should be pursuing. In fact, he's already told us in Matthew chapter 5 that blessed are the peacemakers. Christians should be, by their very nature, people who seek to make peace with people. But many times those efforts will fail, and even when you're trying to be a peacemaker, because of you getting in someone's business, that ends up becoming more contentious and bring more conflict. So why? Why is it that following Jesus, living out the principles of his teaching, brings division, even among family members? I think there's two basic principles we see in this text. It's that, A, he demands that we love him supremely, and B, that we give him ultimate allegiance over any other authority structure in our lives, especially even, as it's made mention here, over our family members. John Piper has helpfully pointed out in his book, What Jesus Demands from the World, in a chapter on this text. He says, It's interesting to ponder for a moment that Jesus demands love. Most of us might think that love is only an action and not a feeling or attached to our emotions at all because if it's demanded, then it's only something we can do and not something that we feel. But Piper helpfully points out, no, the Bible commands us to rejoice, commands us to shout with joy and have all kinds of feelings of emotion towards God. But it's interesting to read this text and think about the implications of Jesus looking at all of us in the world and saying, love me. Let that sink in for a moment. Love no one else more than me. Love me. I mean, if this was me, Phil Howell, going around and telling everybody, demanding, love me, would you not think... I'm staying away from him. And it's not because I'm a conflict avoider, but because you're weird. You've got an ego problem. Something's wrong with you. Interestingly enough, Jesus is the only person that can go around and demand that you love him and that be the most loving thing he could do. Demanding that you love me, Phil Howell, is not that loving because I may not return love towards you in the way that you deserve. I am not worthy of ultimate allegiance or praise. But there is one who is. There's one who does demand it. And it is because he alone is worthy. And that's the reason why he causes division. When you demand ultimate allegiance with supreme love toward people and they don't have love toward Christ, well then this divides families. This divides communities, people. Many of us don't quite understand the the weight behind this text because of how American our culture has become in regards to individualism and the lack of respect toward our family or allegiance toward the family. Somebody last week told me, Pastor Phil, one of the things I really appreciate is the way that when you preach, you try your best to help give people the context of the original text. This is going to be one of those moments, if you'd like to stick with me for a second. It's going to be very helpful for you understand the weight behind Jesus' words, if you understand first, Jews thought of themselves first and foremost as family more than individual. You would not be Phil Howell, you would be Phil son of Steve Howell. My identity is more wrapped up in being a son of or daughter of my father or my mother— James, the son of Zebedee, is how he's introduced earlier in chapter 10, if you look up in the first five verses of our text. This is how you distinguished one James from another James. James, the son of Zebedee. Family ties are more important. When you talk with somebody that comes from a family-centered culture, and you start telling them, oh, what do you do? And where do you live? And those things that we do when we first introduce or meet somebody, they're like, what does that matter? Who cares? Where's your family? Who are you Who are you from? Families were also the main social welfare network. If you read the Mosaic Law, if a man died without a son, his widow did not turn and then apply for some federal program for financial assistance. There were no such federal programs in the Old Testament law or in the Jewish communities. So a brother-in-law or some other relative would then be responsible for taking care of that family member. Families were not just the main social welfare network, they were also the main mechanism for business and personal contacts. People benefited because if your father was a reputable person, then you were then reputable in the eyes of the community. Family provided for your future, it was your inheritance. People are doing everything they can to save up for 401Ks. Jewish people, they have children, that's their inheritance. That's their retirement plan. In ancient cultures, family actually had responsibility for carrying out the death penalty in some circumstances when children would disobey. So many things that you and I just think that's what the government does. No, this is what the family did. This was the government. In fact, in the Roman first century society, the government was a union of families. That was what it was called. Families could be put Put individuals to death, sell them into slavery, banish them, and do lots of things that you and I think that's not what families do. So, what happens when somebody living in this kind of setting gets estranged from their family or shunned? They lose everything. They lose their identity. They're no longer James, the son of Zebedee. They lose their contacts that they might need to get along economically. They lose their safety net that will keep them from excruciating poverty if disaster were to strike. They lose that future inheritance. It would not be uncommon for an estrangement from the family to take violent actions. Imagine what Jesus' disciples were hearing when Jesus tells them that he comes to bring a sword. That you will risk losing family members in your life. If you have ever heard of what it has happened for a Muslim who has converted to Jesus Christ, a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon, then you're getting closer to the idea of what these people are going through in the first century. I think most of us in this room have very little experience of what Jesus is talking about. Some of us may experience, because of our following Jesus, slight estrangement from family members, awkward conversations at a dinner table around Christmas. We might want to avoid family reunions, Or they may not invite us into their homes for something and we feel slighted. And yes, my friends, this is painful. This is real persecution that is being addressed here in our text. It is the same genesis of the persecution that Jesus is talking about in the more extreme form that I'm referring to in the first century. But the effects of being estranged in the first century were far more severe, and that is so helpful for you to realize for why Jesus brings division because he's saying ultimate allegiance even over what you would give up by leaving your family. It's at this point that you should have fresh in your mind those words, as heavy and as severe as these words are. Remember what Jesus told the disciples when they said, but Jesus, if the rich can't enter the kingdom of heaven, we've left everything to follow you. Many of them probably left their family. Do you remember the story? Those first disciples being called out of the boat, and they get up and they leave their father's business, and they go. We have no idea what sort of relational strife that brought, but they left. And it's as if they're counting the cost as they look at Jesus in the face and say, what about us? We've left everything. And Jesus says, you will not fail to receive 10 times what you have left, including family members. Very heart of the gospel is that even though Jesus demands allegiance and love, he supplies a new family, a new identity, and a new community of people that when you leave or feel estranged or get shunned, you can be included, you can be accepted, and you can be loved for not just now here on this earth through the local church, but through all of eternity. My friend, is Jesus your highest love? none of us here have arrived. Of course he's not. Highest of highest love, you have no allegiances that are rivaling Jesus at any point. Do any of us here get more excited about a Bears game that's about to come up this afternoon or Jesus? Do we get more excited about the holidays or food or festivities? Do we get more excited about vacation plans, the new job that we're starting Is our highest and supreme love even greater than the love for our spouse or our children? And does these truths actually influence the way you make decisions in your life, especially for those of you that are running your families? Is it my children's success and their future supreme to other commands in the Scripture that Jesus has given? And therefore we've made our children an idol? Again, these are the sort of questions we need to be having with one another in everyday life as we do life together in this church. The first paradox, the first issue we see is that the Prince of Peace causes division even among families. The second, the giver of life calls us to die even by death on a cross. This is clear, is it not, in verse 38 and 39. and Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the first reference to any kind of cross in Matthew's gospel. Christians have often understood Jesus' words about cross-bearing as some sort of general exhortation about dealing with hard times or suffering. And in that sense, yes, we are to take up our cross when we get sick and have a cold or get the flu this winter or deal with a difficult husband, or your boss, or your pipes burst, or your car broke down. And so in that sense, yes, we bear our crosses. But friends, when we say this, that generic frustration in our life is not the cross that Jesus is talking about. Let us not minimize the importance of that kind of frustration on the one hand, but then on the other hand, not realize that Jesus here is talking about an actual execution On a cross, consider the context of even Matthew chapter 10. He's already referred to throughout the missionary journeys of these disciples, the threat of being cut off from families, and even the talk of death. When people hate us, when people hate followers of Jesus as they proclaim the gospel of Christ, yes, healing, raising the dead, driving out demons, There is also cross-bearing involved. Great successes, wonderful stories of triumph, but many crosses to bear. When our fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, daughters and sons turn against us, that's taking up a cross. Especially when those same people, in this context, might have been the ones that led them to the cross. Let that sink in. Imagine yourself being in a first century home and saying, I, I love Jesus. I love his message. He is the true Son of God, the promised Messiah. And by doing so, what if it was one of your family members that outed you? Told the Roman officials, told Jewish synagogue leaders, this person is betraying the true faith. They need to be executed. Jesus doesn't just say that family members will oppose us, though. They may even deliver us to death. That's the cross I think Jesus has in mind. The real possibility of death, of families leading to Roman soldiers and hanging people on crosses, a wooden cross. It's a common symbol for us that we forget that played a role in the Jewish-Roman life, if you don't know that when there were revolts, this is not like a theoretical idea in the, in the time that Jesus is talking. There were, before the time of Jesus, people that started up new movements of the Jewish faith, and when they did so, the Roman government and other Jewish leaders worked together to put an end to it by taking about a thousand different Jews, lining them up across the city, and hanging them so everyone knows, do not cross us again. Little pun there, but Not intended. But you get the point. Jesus' disciples have to be ready to die on Roman crosses. They've probably seen other people that have made these kind of decisions in the past to go against the standard norm of the day and then die for it. Torturous death, we should know. Murderous execution. If you've not heard this before, hear it. Jesus is saying, sit in the electric chair follow me. Take on lethal injection. Come follow me. That's the sort of gravity of these words. The Romans knew how to send a message of disapproval. They did it well. In the midst of this, Jesus assures them that this apparent loss of life is actually the way to life. The cross is not a path of failure or destruction. It wasn't as if they had successes of healing the sick. Oh, but then they got defeated by death. This instrument of death ends up becoming the instrument of life. Death, in this sense, is life. When you, my friend, are willing to die with self-denial and even give your life fully for Jesus, total allegiance, including your very life, your flesh and blood, When you have that attitude, the same attitude of Christ, that gives you the power to truly live, to truly have life and no longer be enslaved to the passions of this world. Think about the logic of that statement for a moment. If I'm struggling with some sort of sin, some sort of fleshly passion, something that's appeasing me here, oh, I want that, I'm being tempted or allured by that. Could it be that my life's not being laid down and say, have everything? The sort of attitude that says, no, no, you can have anything, so all these other things become so small in comparison to the final and ultimate thing of giving our lives and even dying. So when you're willing to die, as Tom Schreiner said, when believers are willing to suffer and die, the nerve center of sin is severed at the root and true life is then born. I have shared this story, I think, a couple years ago, but it is worth repeating. There's an awesome story of a man named Joseph Son, T-S-O-N, Joseph Son, the former president of the Romanian Missionary Society in Wheaton, Illinois, the pastor of the Second Baptist Church in Romania until 1981 when he was exiled by the Romanian government. During a confrontation between him and some people who were opposing his Christian faith, he said, what is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. In fact, this is an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me in these sufferings a lesson through you. I don't yet know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. All I know this, sirs, is that you will only do to me what God allows you to do and you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument of my great God. Every day he then saw these men, these persecutors, as pompous puppets in the hands of the Father. During one early interrogation with these men, he told an officer who was threatening to kill him. He said, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing, but my supreme weapon is dying. Let me tell you how this works. You know that my sermons and tapes have already started spreading all over your country. Do you realize that if you kill me, those sermons will now be sprinkled with a martyr's blood? Everyone will now know that I have died for what I preached Everyone who has that tape will pick it up and say, you know, I better listen to that again to hear what this man has preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his very life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than they did before. I will actually rejoice in the supreme victory of you killing me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me back home from jail. Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend told him, we know that Mr. Sun would love to die as a martyr, but we're not so foolish to fulfill that wish of his. <laughs> right then, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement, Joseph Sun says. He reflects and says, I remember how for many years I had been so afraid of dying, so I'd keep a low profile so badly wanted to live in this world that I wasted my life with inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided that I was going to die for the gospel, they were telling me, we'll never kill you. I could now go wherever I wanted in my country and preach whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As Jesus said, I was trying to save my life, but I was losing it. Now that I'm willing to lose my life, I finally found it. He was right. That first day of interrogation, the Lord taught many lessons. Hopefully those lessons are ones that we can take for our lives. In what way do you need to deny yourself and be willing to lay it all down? Deny your very life itself. I love that one line he says to his interrogators. The supreme weapon we have is dying. In what sense are we as Christians armed with this weapon? Do we even have an attitude as that of Christ Jesus? Not my will, but yours be done, even in the face of death. I think this begins by daily death, death to ourself. In another section of Jesus' teaching, he will say, take up your cross Daily. So in one sense, we need to see the cross as an actual execution of your life. But in another sense, it's clearly being used as a metaphor for dying every day and laying down our lives for the cause of the gospel. So let me put it simply. Are you really willing to die? Who knows? How likely is it that you and I would face that? I came across a statistic that it's, if you're not in North Africa, like one in three million. You have a greater chance of getting struck by lightning here in Palatine, Illinois, than probably being killed as a martyr. Your chances are pretty good you won't have to die for following Jesus. But is there even any sense you think I'd be willing? Or maybe I would go to North Africa, or I'd go to some place where they cut off Christians' heads? In 1939, Howard Guinness, one of the early founders of an international fellowship of evangelical college students, wrote a little book. The book's called Sacrifice. In that book, he asked these questions. Where are the young men and women of the generation who will hold their lives as cheap and be faithful unto death, who will they lose their lives for Christ and fling them away for love for him? Where are those who will live dangerously and recklessly in his service where are the men of prayer? Where are the men who don't count God's, who who count God's word of more importance than their daily food? Where are the men who, like the Moses of old, communed with God face to face, as a man speaks with his friend? Where are God's men in this day of God's power? I can't help be, be reminded of Acts twenty twenty four. I do not count my life of any value. Or as precious to myself, if only that I might finish my course and the ministry I received in the Lord Jesus. Paul got it. He was one of those men. This is not just those first group of disciples that Jesus is talking about, this is every disciple that's ever walked the face of the earth. Are we willing to live this way and let this way of thinking radically transform how you think about every day? As you bear your cross, the prince of peace will cause division, even among families. The giver of life will call you and I to die, even death on a cross. Let's look at our last text. The reward of the righteous is free, even though it's costly. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. some of you look back in chapter 10, you'll notice at the very beginning of Jesus' sermon here, he's gonna talk about when you go from town to town, you're gonna to enter into a village and you're gonna try and stay with somebody and if they don't let you stay in their home, they reject you, they don't receive you, you're to shake the dust off of you and go to the next town. I very much so believe he's kind of full circle coming back to that concept here about as they're being sent out, how are they going to be received? Some will receive them, some did receive them, some will reject them. So even in light of these very hard and challenging and sobering texts, Jesus' sermon ends on a very sweet promise. Receiving Jesus' disciples is receiving Jesus himself. The identity between Jesus and those who call the name of Christ is one in the same. He is your older brother if you follow Christ, as Hebrews 2 makes quite clear. He is your friend, as John 15 makes clear. Those who love him and obey his commands, he calls them friends. Do you understand that you and Jesus are that closely connected? Hopefully our lives are so intertwined with Christ that that sounds normal to us. Not like a little add-on to our lives, but the very identity of who we are and what that means to live in this world is Christ. To live is Christ, Philippians 1.21 says. So receiving Jesus' disciples is to receive Jesus. Think later on in Matthew 25 when Jesus rebukes people and says, listen, you did not feed me. You did not care for me when I was in prison. You did not clothe me when I was naked. And they say, what do you mean we did not clothe you and feed you and visit you in prison? He says, what you did to the least of these, and then many people miss this last word, brothers of mine. It's not just any poor person. It's especially the poor of those who follow Jesus, Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25. Those brothers of Christ, those brothers and sisters that love Christ, when you feed them, when you clothe them, when you care for them, when you bring them into your home and are hospitable to them, when you take them out to lunch, when anything you do, even giving them a cup of cold water, you're doing that to Jesus. And Jesus takes it one step further. He who then receives me receives the one who sent me. You're not just doing that to Jesus, you're doing that to the triune God because Jesus is God. And so the identity of you and Jesus is tight, but how much tighter is the identity of the Father and the Son? I think it's important for us to then ask the question, what is the reward that Jesus is referring to here? And I think the simplest answer is that it is the same reward that the prophet gets. If you receive a prophet, then you will receive a prophet's reward. If you receive a righteous person, It's the same reward as a prophet, it's the same reward as a righteous person, which then begs the question, what kind of reward does a prophet of God get? What kind of reward does a righteous man get? I think the shorthand summary, I would say, is the ultimate reward, eternal life, being with God forever, the harmony of reconciliation between God and man. Those are the people who get those rewards, prophets, righteous men, and then notice this last line, the little ones often used as a language for little children. And I think that that same concept is brought together. The prophet and the righteous person, the little ones, is all Jesus' disciples here. That's who he's talking about. He's using these different language throughout this paragraph to explain who these people are. And he says, If you give them even as little as one single cup of cold water in my name, then you too will receive a reward eternal life, if that's what the reward is. For a cup of cold water? This is the part that I was not expected to be so controversial until I dove into a little bit. Think about the controversy of the sheer madness of God's grace to say what he's saying here to us through Jesus. To receive the reward of a righteous person is to just give a cup of cold water to a brother or sister that names the name of Jesus. And you too, if you receive that person, Jesus will receive you. In other words, as I said earlier, is basically free. I mean, that doesn't take very much at all. To receive the reward of a prophet or a righteous person, a child of God, one of the little children of God, to be in the family of God, all you gotta do is Give a cup of cold water. This is a remarkable statement. Jesus promises rewards to people who do no more than show some basic human kindness. Remember, on the one hand, the disciples will stir up some opposition, hostility, and anybody that is giving them a cup of cold water or a simple meal is then identifying themselves with those disciples, and they're risking something. Imagine the scenario. A child invites one of these disciples into the home, gives him a glass of cold water and the father says, what? You're letting that Jesus follower come in? Into our house? Do you want to be his disciple too? Are you identifying yourself with him? We're disciples of Moses. We're not with this Jesus guy. So on the one hand, I don't want to minimize the courage that it would take for somebody to associate with the followers of Jesus, knowing the kind of hostility we've been talking about throughout these Texts in Matthew 10. But on the other hand, consider how this one little thing is being done to receive such a great reward. It does not equal. Eternal life should not be given so easily at the cost of just simply one cup of water. Isn't it striking that Jesus does not expect everyone then to join his disciples out on mission? He doesn't limit the reward of eternal life for only those who are engaging in dramatic public preaching ministry. He doesn't limit his rewards to people who give openly and actively supporting the disciples. These people are not going out. They're staying in their homes. They will not be well known. They will not get attention. Maybe only their closest friends, families, and neighbors would know. Think about the minimalism of this gift. Jesus still promises eternal life, for receiving him. Because it's not about the thing that's being given. It's about the message of Christ that's being received. As the gift is being given. Here's the controversy. Are you and I more stingy than Jesus? Before we promise the reward of eternal life. Do we want to see some service first? Do we want to see a commitment to the church, faithfulness to come every week. And if they miss, uh-oh, you lost your reward. Cup of cold water. Ha! Huh? We want to see tithers, givers, Bible memorization. We want to see somebody have all their doctrines in a row before they can be baptized and get the reward of eternal life. We want to see someone become a prophet before they receive the prophet's reward. I think Jesus' generosity far exceeds what most of us are comfortable with. And that, my friends, is quite controversial in and of itself. His generosity to give his grace of eternal life is so free and so overabundant that some of you, you might find that offensive. Many people do. How dare Jesus give a righteous man's reward to a guy who did nothing but just give one. It's in the singular, my friend. Not many cups. One single cup of cold water water. When this righteous person has been praying two times a week, fasting, beating themselves, falling before the temple, and praying again and again before God, far too often many of us are just like Jonah, offended at the freedom and the prodigal, reckless love of God the Father, and tempted to think, no, that would be wasting your mercy on the wrong kind of people, God. If the reward of the righteous is given to someone just like this, a cup of cold water type person, then I say it's basically free. But that doesn't mean it didn't cost something. The reason why it's so free and why this grace is so extravagant is because ultimately the reward of eternal life cost Jesus his life. That cross that was mentioned when he says, take up your cross and follow me, is because Jesus himself, as I said earlier in a previous sermon, never asks his disciples to do something that he won't do first. He took up his cross, a wooden one, literally, on his scourged, whipped back after being persecuted and thrown and dragged before governors, and he died. For you, to receive a reward that you do not deserve and that you could never pay for. No cup of cold water equals a payment for what you receive in return. Friends, let us meditate on the costliness of Christ as we take the Lord's Supper now, as we reflect on His body and His blood being given for us and know that it's free, but it's costly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ. We want to ask that you would help stir our affections for him, our love for him. We thank you that he is lovely. We thank you that he's worthy of our love and that he has revealed himself as beautiful and glorious. We want to ask, Father, that each of us would be pricked, the very deepest parts of our souls, the very inner parts of our hearts and our minds, that every bit of us would want to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that that love would overflow into love for our neighbor, to do practical acts of kindness to brothers and sisters in this very room, giving them cups of cold water, visiting them in hospitals, praying for them unceasingly, inviting them into our homes and receiving them as Christ would receive us into his heavenly home, caring for the least of these, those who are hurting and struggling to pay their rent. God, as a community of followers of Jesus, would you make this church a people that are willing to lay it all down, even our very lives? God, as I pray this, I know that it would be a miracle And every time it is, when the hardened, stubborn heart turns away from our selfish choices and runs with loving arms into those that need help. So I pray, would you do hundreds of miracles this week? Would your spirit guide us and lead us to the truth and help us to live in reality of the cross, that it did happen? and it flipped everything upside down. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.